invite you to take out your Bible, opening to the book of Revelation, chapter 6. Revelation, chapter 6, the last book of the Bible. And, you know, we sing this song often in this study, the book of Revelation, because this really is the message of Revelation, that Christ, in His victory over sin, over death, over Satan, Christ on His throne would be our vision. It's what we cling to day in and day out through the ups and downs of life because truly the message of Revelation has been that is our only source of hope. It is in Christ alone. And our ongoing prayer is that God would be gracious to help us to turn off all other things, turn our vision away from all the other things of the world, bad things, good things, anything that's not Christ, that we may gaze upon Him so that we might hope in Him in every aspect of life. Well, we have made our way this morning into Revelation chapter 6 in this sermon series that began all the way back in January, and it's going to take us through the entirety of the book of Revelation. And as I've told you before, I have no idea how long we'll be here Um, in the book of Revelation. My guess is it will be a substantial amount of time. But as we've made our way into Revelation chapter 6, we've officially come to that point in the book where I begin asking myself, what was I thinking that when I began this sermon series, when I committed to go through it? In fact, it did. I wrestled with the thought this week. I wonder if they would notice if I stood up here this week and just said, open your Bible to... Song of Solomon, chapter 1. We're beginning a new sermon series. I wonder if anybody would notice that, hey, we didn't finish what we started. We didn't finish the book of Revelation. Um, Because we come here to chapter 6, and this is where things really begin to get interesting. Now, I'm going to use this morning to try to... I have a goal in mind of how far I want to get in chapter 6, and I'm not convinced I'm going to get there. Part of what I want to do this morning is transition. I want to set up everything we've seen up to this point and show how it sets the foundation for everything from chapter 6 going forward. Uh, I want to try to set the structure of what's to come um, around where we've been. And then I hope to be able to get into the text itself. But let's read Revelation chapter 6 this morning, beginning in verse 1. I'm only going to read the first eight verses And by God's grace, we might get through these eight verses. And if not, you know where we will be be in the coming weeks. Chapter 6, verse 1. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him. And he came out conquering and to conquer. And when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, so that men should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. And when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, 
and do not harm the oil and wine. And when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death. And Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. Well, let me try to set this up. Before we dig into those things, let me try to transition into chapter 6. As we come to this, for those of you, maybe this is your first dipping of the toe with us into the book of Revelation, some of the things we've discussed up until this point, and this is good for all of us. We know that the book of Revelation, there's just a lot of strange things in it, unusual, confusing elements, uh, pictures in the book of Revelation that, that add to the general complexity. People, when they come to the book of Revelation, they usually come into one of two extremes. The one being, it's just overwhelming to me. I just, I can't figure it out. Therefore, I stay away from it. I mean, I'm interested by what others say from it. And really, I'm just going to, whatever it is somebody else tells me to think about it, that's what I'm going to go with. But I myself am not going to dig into it and try to connect the dots and see how it fits with everything that's come before it. Genesis through Jude. And then you got the other extreme who are just gung-ho, who don't even know there's a Bible previous to it. It's just revelation consumes their every thought and, and every nuance and every picture, and they, they've devoted their lives to, to understanding and knowing what these things are, and God bless them. The sad fact is that many Christians have not known how to utilize the book of Revelation not seeing how it fits together with the whole of biblical revelation. And even more sadly, so many Christians have divided and separated and even argued and fought with one another. As I've talked to other pastors about, I'm preaching through the book of Revelation, and they, are you crazy? And I hear their own horror stories. People even leave churches over disagreements on the book of Revelation and how the book should be interpreted and understood. And it would seem that much of the controversy surrounding the book of Revelation has to do with the structure of the book and what exactly is Revelation, what are we reading here? I mean, in the passage we just read, horses, different colors, what, what are we reading here? And I think the question that inquiring minds most want to know when does all this take place? Well, this morning, I want to ask you, and it's something I've asked you previously. It's something I'm trying to do as I come to the book itself. I want to humbly ask you to do something as we particularly come to this turning point in the book of Revelation. And that's this. Guard against imposing your already established, long-held belief system on the text we're looking at. And that's hard to do. I grew up in the same culture you did. And when probably I just read this text, you probably already had in your mind, ah, I've got, I know what this is. And I ask you to suspend that not because I assume whatever your thoughts are are wrong and whatever I'm going to say is right, not at all. As I've told you at the beginning of the study, where I stand today on the book of Revelation, it's not where I started. And truth be told, probably in about a year, 
where I will be on it is not where I am today. So when I ask you to do that, it's not because I assume you're wrong and what I'm going to say is right, but rather because when we gather together to open the word of God for preaching, it is God who speaks. And my interest as a preacher is not to, I expect you to have the same eschatological viewpoint as I do. That's inconsequential to me. My job as we open the word of God is to uphold the text in the way that most honors King Jesus. And there are some eschatological viewpoints that don't do that. It's focused more on world events. It's focused more on when, less on who. And so I ask you to, as I have to do, every time I'm, I'm studying these chapters, to suspend those things because inevitably, and this will be true for every one of you this morning, because it's true of me when I'm listening to other people who talk about the the moment you hear me say something that contradicts something, one of your already long-established beliefs, what are you going to do to me? Turn it off. You're not going to listen anymore. And we're here together not so you can listen to me. Any fool could stand up here and do what I'm doing. We're here because we want to see Jesus. And each week what I'm bringing to you, it may go against something you've long held, and I will tell you, pretty much everything that I'm presenting goes against something I've long held. But I would commend to you, it is upholding Jesus. Because that's really what the book of Revelation is about. And as we come to chapter 6, and this section which runs from chapter 6 through chapter 19, and that is the seal judgment, the trumpet judgments, the bowl judgments, I will tell you, on the foundation of everything we've laid up to this point, the whole point of those judgments is Jesus. John is not concerned about world events. He's not concerned about when they're going to happen. He's concerned that the church of Jesus Christ cling to the Jesus, the lamb who was slain, the one who is worthy, clings to him in all things. So I want to try to set the foundation for what's to come based upon where we've been. Up to this point, most of Revelation, chapters 1 through chapter 5, have been pretty straightforward, relatively easy, I think. Now, of course, we've had to wrestle with some of the unique features of Revelation. It's apocalyptic literature, which means it's, it's not, we don't read Revelation the way we read historical narrative. We don't read Revelation the way we read gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We don't read it the same way we read the epistles or prophecy. Or, you know, the, the wisdom literature. It's its own unique thing. It's kind of like when you go to a new country, right? You, you go, and as an American, you don't expect when you step into a foreign country that they're now all of a sudden going to act American, right? You're going to have to adjust to that culture. You're going to have to adjust to their things. Same thing when we're looking at the various genres of Scripture. They each have their own culture, if you will, and you have to adapt, and so with the book of Revelation, we've had to adapt a little bit for, with things like the symbolism that is associated with, with uh, apocalyptic uh, literature, the symbolism with numbers. We've seen the number seven over and over again, symbolic of fullness, of completion. That's not me. Look how smart I am. I figure this on the basis of we've seen this elsewhere in Scripture. Biblically, we, we have a precedent for why we, we're doing these things. We're adapting to it. And so there's, there's been some of that that we've had to deal with. 
But structurally up to this point, the text has been rather simple. And it's important for us to grasp this because we would be fools to think that now as we enter into chapter 6, now all of a sudden all that is just done away with and now it goes off into some new direction. Basically up to this point, I don't want to oversimplify things. I think we can say that Revelations 1 through 5 has centered upon the Lord Jesus Christ. That's not, that's, I hope you would all agree and say, yeah, that makes perfect sense to us. Based upon where we've been, word for word, we've been through every word in chapters 1 through 5. It is centered upon the person of Jesus Christ. In chapter 1, it's his person. In chapters 2 and 3, it's his presence among his churches. In chapters 4 and 5, it is his place and at the right hand of the throne of God in the midst of the angels and the four living creatures. It is all about Jesus. Going all the way back to chapter 1, we're told in the introduction, chapter 1, verse 1, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him. It's the revelation about Jesus. Right there, John clues us into everything that's about to come. If you go in a direction of interpreting the book of Revelation and it's not, it, it deviates away from Jesus, you've missed it. So right off the bat, he's cluing us in on how to read this book. It's about Jesus. It's not necessarily about the future. All right? Again, this is stuff we've talked about, but at this critical turning point in the book, it's necessary to bring it back up. Revelation is not about the future. Now, when I say that, it is, all right? Yes, it includes things about the future, but not in the way that I was raised to think about the book of Revelation is about the future. That went to an extreme that really it's not about. And we have biblical precedent here in this in chapters 1 through 5, to help us to understand that. Rather, something I said in the very first sermon, Revelation is like the exclamation point at the end of a long sentence that is the Bible. Meaning if we go all the way back to the book of Genesis, and this is where we really began our study of the book of Revelation. We Remember we preached through the book of Genesis, and that took us about two years. Then I preached through the book of Hebrews, because Hebrews takes Genesis and the Old Testament, and it grabs hold of that, and it takes the New Testament, and it shows how Christ is the fulfillment of all the foundation that we see in Genesis. And then Hebrews links us to Revelation, because Revelation is how everything finds its consummation in Jesus Christ. And so, throughout the Bible, <clears throat> in those opening sermons in Genesis and through the Old Testament, <clears throat> we found the promise of a Messiah, right? All the way back in Genesis 3.15, where Adam and Eve sin against God, and in the day that you eat of that fruit, you will surely die. And then lo and behold, they eat. And then God comes looking, they try to hide from God, God comes in, he finds them, and in Genesis chapter 3, announces curses on the serpent, on the man and the woman. Now judgment is, they're going to die. But Jesus makes a promise in Genesis 3.15, that the seed of the woman, who's the woman? Eve, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the seed of the serpent. So it's, it's kind of just a small thing, but there's mercy there. What? God is not saying you're not going to die. He's at least saying, but you're not going to die for at least nine months. That's the length of a pregnancy. The seed of the woman, you've done this. The wages of sin is death. But at the very least, God's mercy is there's gonna, you're going to not die now. Nine, there will be a child. And that's the mercy of God. And he lays the foundation that somewhere, 
All this that Adam and Eve's sin had caused, the sin and rebellion against God, the curse of death that had been brought, would be overturned when the seed of the woman crushed the head of the seed of the serpent. And we looked at the Old Testament as just the, the promises that God continually makes. The Messiah's coming. The seed of the woman's coming. Not yet, but he's coming. And he's revealing more and more about who's going to be until we get to the Gospels and we're told that in the fullness of time, the Son of God came. John the Baptist announces, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The seed of the woman is here. The long-promised one is here. And he lived, he died, he was raised from the dead. Everything that was necessary to overturn the curse of Genesis chapter 3, he accomplished. He died, he rose again. Acts tells us he was ascended to the right hand of the Father. Well then, what's the rest of the New Testament about? It's the ongoing ministry of Jesus Christ through his apostles, the building up of the church. And when we come to Revelation, we find it still John ministering to the churches of how the Christ who is at the Father's right hand how he continues to minister to Christians today in our struggles. Revelation is a declaration of the glorious victory of Christ over Satan, over sin, over death. Revelation is every believer's hope in the midst of persecution, hardship, suffering. And as I look around the room this morning, I don't know your specific circumstances, but I would submit to you if Your circumstances are anything like mine. We've all got our own hardships, our own afflictions, our own difficulties, our own insecurities, our own loneliness, our own feelings of inadequacy, our own, you fill in the blank, whatever is appropriate to you. And the world and well-intending people are offering you all kinds of things, good parents and friends. Hey, this is what you need. And the book of Revelation says, with all due respect, If those well-intending people are not telling you Jesus Christ is your hope, Jesus Christ is your answer, Christ is what you're looking for, then they're not telling you the right thing. Revelation is about upholding Jesus Christ. So if I can put it another way, are we doing a sermon series through the book of Revelation? Yeah. But I think based upon this understanding, what we're really doing is we're studying Jesus in the book of Revelation. We're studying what Revelation tells us about Jesus, the resurrected, ascended, enthroned one at the Father's right hand. It's telling us what Jesus right now, right now, right? We just came through Revelation 4 and 5 where where Christ pulled back the veil and told John, come up here, look, right now, here's what's going on. Revelation is showing us right now what Jesus is presently doing. It's not about what's happening in the future. It's about what is our king doing right now. And that's the first piece in understanding the structure of Revelation. We've also seen, and that was established in chapter 1. In chapters 2 and 3, we have Christ's letter, that one on the throne, his letters to the seven churches. The number seven, symbolic of completion, of fullness. Yes, those letters were written to seven literal churches with seven literal congregations, with seven circumstances, but the number seven teaches us. Again, this is apocalyptic literature. We've got to adapt to this culture. That those seven churches, there were more than seven churches in Asia Minor. 
As you went to the church at Ephesus, and then you went to the next one, you passed by other churches to go to this one. Why these seven? Because it's symbolic of the fullness of Christ's church, the church that he died to redeem. And Christ's message to those seven churches is Christ's message to all churches in every age, in every situation, in every circumstance. Those were his messages to Covenant Life Church. We identify with all seven of those churches because all seven of them, now there were two of them that there were no word of rebuke that Christ gave to them, but still they weren't perfect churches. They were just on the right track. But where Christ did rebuke his churches, there was a takeaway for every one of us. Because he's speaking to us. And within those letters, you will recall Christ made a promise to every one of the churches, a, a promise to every one of us. To those who conquer, you will get, and he, he lays out a promise, unique to each one of them. And the problem is, I've never one day of my life been able to conquer. Sin, I do my best. I've never once been able to live a sinless day. I've never once been able to live a sinless half day. I've never been able to live a sinless hour. Talking about the motivation of my heart in everything that I do, being to the glory of God, I could narrow that thing down probably to within seconds. Everything in my being, love the Lord your God with all your heart all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. I can't conquer my sin, Satan, the enemy. So he's made these wonderful promises to those who conquer in all those seven churches to you and I, but I can't conquer. I'm hopeless, I'm helpless. And that's where Revelation 4 and 5 comes in because the king says, Listen, while you're struggling down here, Jake, in Covenant Life Church, because you're just like the church at Ephesus and Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis and all these others, while this is going on, simultaneously come up here, Christ says to Jesus. And this is where we have the throne room vision in four and five. And what's he saying? That your victory, your conquering, is not in what you do. Look at the lamb who was slain, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Who's, he looks like a lamb who's been slain. His jugular has been cut. He's bleeding out. But Revelation chapter 5 says he's standing there. He's not there humped over like a, a, a corpse. He's standing. It's obvious he's been killed. His, his throat's been slit. But he's standing, speak, speaking of the resurrection. He's rose from the dead. And what's, what's Jesus saying to us through John? Conquering. Is not in our strength, in, in, in us. It is in Christ, in his death, in his resurrection. Conquering and taking hold of those promises of God is done not through today. I'm going to try to conquer. Today I'm going to do it. Today I'm going to do my best. I have failed miserably at that. It is in clinging to that one. And that's the foundation that we've seen so far. It's been all about Christ. Can we agree on that? And it's been all about Christ, not in a century from now or thousands of years from now. It's been right now. This is our king. This is where he is. This is what he's doing. This is where our hope today is. Now, why on earth, as we turn to chapter 6, would we fast forward to thousands of years, abandon everything that's been there, and fast forward to some unknown time in the future 
to where now it really has no application to us whatsoever. If, if this is all about right before when Jesus returns, well, unless he's about to return, and please, by all means, now's as good a time as any. But if that's the case, chapter 6 through 19 are of no relevance to you and I whatsoever. It is of no relevance to those seven churches whatsoever. And that's the problem. The broader understand, evangelical understanding of Revelation chapter 6, verses 19 holds that, and, and let me be clear, this was the position I held for the longest time. This is the position I was raised up in, I was trained in. The broader evangelical understanding, which really has only been popular since the turn of the 20th century, so it's not that old, it's just all we have known, is that these chapters, chapters 6 through 19, are describing events that will occur over the course of a relatively short period of time right before the second coming of Jesus. If you think back to our very first message, we called this the futuristic view, the future view of the book of Revelation. It's held, and this is probably, I would guess, for most of you, when we began reading chapter 6. This was probably immediately what you embedded into that's what this is talking about, because for most of us, it's what we were raised on. That this is, oh yeah, this is talking about that future time, approximately seven years in length, called the Great Tribulation, down into the future. And I would submit to you that's not the position I hold any longer. Not that the position I hold here today is the one that I will have the rest of my life. It's probably continually developing. I know that position. It's what I was trained in, raised up in. I understand the strengths and weaknesses of it, the nuances of it. But I don't think that's what John intends. Now, you will have every opportunity. I don't, I don't want you to come and argue with me. Hey, we've been down that road. My, job, my, my desire is not that you think the way I think. My hope is that you will at least, well, let me hear what he has to say. If it's exalting King Jesus, that's what I want to do. And let me, let, me, let me see if the dots connect. Now let me clarify what the position I do hold today is, because I, I, this is not intended to be provocative, argumentative, or in any way divisive. What I am saying, I do believe that what we will be reading in chapter 6 through 19 describes events at the end of human history. All right? I do think it describes that. Events in conjunction with the second coming of Jesus. I also believe it describes events that are happening today, right here, right now. And it's describing events that have been transpiring ever since the ascension or the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. So I uphold Revelation 6 through 19 is describing for us in symbolic imagery the commonplace of human experience in the time between Christ's first coming and second coming. And I fully understand that for probably most everyone in that room, in this room, you may at this point be saying he's gone heretical. <laughs> and I completely understand that. I, I promise you, I, I, I don't begrudge. I understand that there is, this may be something, to, all I ask, for the sake of Jesus Christ and the exaltation of our King. Let's just, let's see where the text leads us. Now, let me try to explain what I think is going on here in Revelation chapter 6 through 19. 
and how it fits into the foundation that's been laid. It's been all about Jesus to this point. It's going to be all about Jesus going forward. I believe what we're looking at here in Revelation chapter 6 through 19 are seven cycles. Um, and that's in keeping with the symbolism of the book, right? We've seen the number seven. It's being utilized over and over for completion, for fulfillment, for fullness. And these seven cycles are running, not chronologically in the sense of this happens first, and then this must happen, and then in time this must happen, and then once that happens this, but rather, not chronologically, but that it's running cyclically. And I want to commend to you, we're looking at the same period of time in seven different cycles. So we're going to look at one period of time that runs from the first coming of Jesus to the second coming of Jesus. We're going to take a pass at it. John is drawing our attention to something. And then we're going to look at that same period of time from a second cycle. It's not going to be a different period of history, a new period. of It's the same one. And John will actually draw our attention to very specific things that he didn't draw our attention to in the first pass. And then there will be a third pass, and so on and so forth. We'll be looking at the same thing from seven different angles. There's repetition. Is there biblical precedent for this? There is. How often do we read the book? We see this in Psalms. We see this in Proverbs. It was a, a nuance of Jewish literature. So often you'll see a, a line in the book of Psalms, and right underneath it is a repetition of it. It just repeats. Think about the, where we were just at this morning in Psalm 118. Let us praise the Lord, or, uh, exalt him for his steadfast love. And then in verse 2, what did it say? Let all who fear the Lord exalt him for their steadfast love. Let all the uh, priests of Aaron exalt him for the steadfast love. Why the repetition? We live in a day-to-day, we get annoyed by repetition, right? Because there's significance there. The repetition is where our God is drawing more. And we see this in Psalms, we see it in Proverbs. Another example of why I think we're looking at the same period of time from different cycles is because one of the things we're going to see, we're not going to get through this morning, but in Revelation, as these seals are being opened, the sixth seal pictures for us final judgment. The sixth seal is a picture of the end of time. When you get to chapter 20 or chapter 21, there's another statement of final judgment, and that's the one we're more familiar with, right? That's the one, the great white throne set, all of creation is called before him. There's the lake of fire. The question we've got to wrestle with, and this is where we, have we really paid attention? Are we saying there's two different final judgments? Like in chapter 6, the sixth seal is just kind of a, that's the start of one. And then the real one comes later. No. It's looking at the exact same thing. It's building in intensity because John is drawing our attention to different aspects of that final judgment every time we pass by it. But it's dealing with the same thing. And so I believe these seven cycles are viewing the same period of time from the resurrection of Jesus until the time of his return. Now, again, because we live in a generation that we, we, we get annoyed by repetition and redundancy. Why? Is this just like watching a rerun over and over? My wife gets so mad at me because I'll watch my, whatever my favorite show is and I have certain episodes I like and I'll watch it pretty much over and over and over and over again. And she's like, 
Seriously? Again? There's other things on. There's other episodes. I just, I'm fascinated. I like it. There's, there's this going on in this episode, and, there's, and then this going on. And just, you know, just depending on my mood or whatever, my, whatever my, I just, I get a kick out of it, right? As we make these seven passes over our king, this time between our king's first coming and second, it's not like we're looking at a rerun over and over and over again. Think of it this way. Did any of you, when you were growing up, and, and if those of you who are of the younger generation will have no idea what I'm talking about, but it was kind of like a Sony Walkman, it was a little handheld black and white TV, not like a little three or four inch black TV, had the antenna, you held it in the hand of your hand. You ever have one of those? You know what I'm talking about? And it was fascinating to me. You could actually watch television on this thing. It was, it was, it was awesome. You watch a show, you, you can see it. Now, it's grainy. It's a small picture. But I can, I can see it. Oh, but the marvel will take that exact same show and let's put it on a 19-inch color TV. And what happens? I mean, the show hasn't changed. It's the same show. Oh, but all of a sudden, now it comes to life. All of a sudden, I'm seeing colors. I'm seeing vibrancy. I'm, I'm just picking up things I never saw before. Let's take that same show and let's put it on a, on a 50-inch LED. Well, now it's, it's almost like I'm in the room with them. I mean, it's like, I mean, I'm, same show. Nothing has transpired differently. But my goodness, the magnificence, the Christmas, crispness. I'm seeing things I've never seen, the detail I've never seen before. Likewise, when we look at the final judgment in the sixth seal, man, it lays out for us the judgment of our king upon his enemies. But by the time we make our seventh pass through it in Revelation chapter 20, it's expanded so much more. The the marvelousness of it, the the weight of it, the majesty of it, every cycle is adding more and more to it. It's like we're, we're looking at it from a new lens, a new angle, a new crispness, crispness, I keep saying crispness. These cycles, it's not like a merry-go-round, right? Those annoy me. We're just slow. It's, it's more like a spiral. We're looking at the same thing, but we're getting higher and higher and higher. We're seeing everything from his resurrection till his return. And it's continually progressing upwards. Maybe this will help you. Think about when you go to a football game. Let's say you're blessed enough to sit at your favorite team's football game, and you sit at 50-yard line tickets, and you sit right there five rows back. Man, you've got a panorama of the game. And at that same moment, this game is being televised. You've got television cameras all over the stadium looking at the exact same game but from different angles. There may be even a camera overhead, right? And it's just a different angle on the same game. Some of those cameras may be focused. Maybe there's a, uh, an, an MVP candidate or a Heisman Trophy candidate, and that camera, one of those cameras is devoted. I'm just going to follow this player. Or, or, or I love watching the coaches on the sideline. Maybe one of the cameras is focused on the coach. Now, it's all, it's all the same game panoramically. You see it all, but each camera is focused upon some different element. That's what John is doing here for us. He's already established our king is on his throne, chapters 4 and 5. And now in chapters 6 through 19, he's showing us multiple visions that have been granted to him, describing the entirety of what our king accomplished from the 
uh, from his first coming until his second coming. Sometimes he's giving us a panoramic view of the whole thing. At times, some of the cycles are focused upon one major event. Sometimes some of the cycles will be focused upon a particular person. Right? We'll be introduced into some really strange people in these things. Right? It plays into it. And then some of the unique trends. So that's what, again, as you sit back and you're reading through the book of Revelation and you're connecting these dots, a lot of times I I don't know that we've paid enough attention to see and to sit down and think about how all these things are connected. And that these judgments of God, of our king, that have been thrown down upon his enemies, upon the world, they've already been set in motion. They were set in motion long ago. And they're working towards an intensity that will be reached in final judgment. Another way we're clued into this, we're going to see this in chapter 6. Christ instructs one of his horsemen to kill a third of the population. Or excuse me, a fourth. Or not to harm a fourth. In a later chapter, that becomes a third. 33% is more than 25%. And then in a later chapter, it becomes over the whole. There's a movement in intensity, a growing in intensity of the wrath, of the justice, of the judgments of our king. It's the same thing. But they're moving toward their consummated end. Where our king will bring us to that point to where to those who conquer, you get these promises. And it may feel like us today. Where's our king conquering? I see evil all over the place in my own life. There's suffering, there's hardship, there's affliction. Where's the conquering? That's where the book of Revelation, it's coming. It's moving in that direction. And it will reach that point where he will conquer his enemies once and for all. It's already been done at the cross and in the resurrection. It will reach its final consummation. And in that moment is when his people will conquer. So, as we look forward, chapter 6 through 19, you may expect, well, good, we're getting into the section where he's going to talk about future events. No. We're getting to that section where we're going to talk about the application of our king. I do believe that these events have to do with the second coming but that they also have to do with events now. And they've been happening since the first century when our Lord was raised to the right hand of the Father. I just simply ask for your grace. I know in this room, and this is where I told Jamie, I don't even want to stand up there tomorrow and preach because I know immediately some are just from this point forward, some of you won't even listen to another thing I say. And I understand that. But I would ask for grace, for the glory of our King. Let's see if these things are true. Let's dig into Revelation chapter 6. We may not get as far as I hoped, but let's dig into it just a little bit. In Revelation chapter 6, we come upon these, I would guess, these well-known images. The 
the four horsemen of the apocalypse is what they're often called, the, the four horsemen. John t- sees uh, in, in chapter 4 and 5, John sees the scroll on the Father's right hand. No one is worthy to take it except for the line of the tribe of Judah, who is, also has the appearance of a lamb who's been slain, but he's standing. That one Christ is the one and only one who is worthy to approach the majesty of the throne of Almighty God with the peals of thunder, the lightning, everything we saw in chapter 4, who can go and survive being in the presence of that God, take that scroll and begin unfolding it. That scroll, again, as we talked about last week, is the unfolding of God's eternal plans and purposes. The promises of God come to fruition. They can only come to fruition through Christ. Christ is the one who executes these things. These four horsemen we see here in chapter 6, they belong together. They are one expression of Christ's judgment and justice. All of them together are working together to accomplish what our king has intended. So, as we go through it together, we're we're told first here in verse 1 about the white horse. Verse 1, now I watched when the lamb opened one of the seven seals, And I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him. And he came out conquering and to conquer. So, there's going to be a lot of repetition here. Again, we'll be familiar in chapter 6 through 19, a lot of repetition. The lamb, who is the only one worthy to break the seal, he breaks the seal. Um, and, And as he does so, What we're seeing here, is this the lamb who has the sovereignty, the authority to do what he wants? It's the lamb who has the ability to execute what he wants. The lamb always accomplishes what he wants. The lamb does everything that he wants. The lamb is Christ. And now this white horse and white rider, who are they? Well, there's a couple of general theories, one being that this is Jesus Christ. And that one is because in Revelation chapter 19, we see one who is clearly Jesus Christ riding on a white horse when it comes to the final judgment. And so some will say that this is Jesus Christ here. If it's him there then on the white horse, then it has to be here in this white horse. Uh, to which that makes sense, but it doesn't really fit with what we see here. The, really, the only similarity between that white horse and that horseman in chapter 19 and this one is the white horse. Beyond that, they both have crowns, but it's interesting here, the crown that this one is wearing here in verse 2, there are two different Greek words here in chapter 6 and in chapter 19, the one Christ is wearing. The one here is a temporary crown, and that certainly is not the one that our king wears in chapter 19. It's not a temporary crown. Here it's a temporary crown that's usually placed on the head of one who's gained victory in conquest. So, to put it, let's say in first century, let's say a, a military leader, Caesar, let's say he gains victory over his enemy. And now he, he rides into battle, he goes into battle not on a white horse. But he gets victory over his enemy, he conquers them in conquest, and then in his ride back home. He has the privilege of riding a white horse, and a crown is put on his head. And it's not not a permanent crown. He doesn't now become king of all things. It's a temporary crown. So this picture here, whoever it is who's being sent out by Jesus Christ, he's being guaranteed, he's on a white horse, he's wearing a crown, he's being guaranteed victory. 
He's being guaranteed there will be conquest. He's, he has a weapon. It's a bow. It's a picture of victory. And he will accomplish what the king has sent him to do. And so I would persuade you that this is a picture of conquest. It's a picture of victory. This is when here, it's, it's again, the risen and ascended Christ as he looks down upon the earth and all who have rejected him, who have rejected him as king, he sends now down this insatiable greed of conquest. And every generation since Christ has been affected by it. Mankind continually is affected by the, the greed of conquerors, that conquest, that desire for more, to take more, to, to, to take what doesn't belong to me. And the idea here is that those who will not bow down to the king, now, as he sits on his throne, will suffer the constant unhappiness and hardship of these constant conquerors who are constantly trying to grab more and take more and conquer them. And this can be seen, yes, militarily in the conquering of land, but let's make it more practical. This is the world that we live in. In business, people trying to conquer at the expense of another. People trying to grab and take hold of more so that they can build their own at the expense of somebody else. Somebody cruelly trying to get ahead at the expense of somebody trying to get that job promotion. Why? I put myself up. I put somebody else. No, you don't want to hire this person. No, they're not qualified. I've seen them do this. I've seen them do that. There's conquest there. I'm trying to grab hold of something I want. Now, keep in mind, these horsemen, they go together. They're grouped together. So keep that first one in mind, conquest, that desire for more, to grab more. The red horse next, we see in verse 3, when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth. These things are connected. Take peace from the earth so that men should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. Now, there's overlap here. When there is the greed of conquest, right? Somebody who's just simply, I'm trying to get more. I want more. I want to have what somebody else has. That greed of conquest. There is usually, always, cruelty associated with it. Violence associated with it. Meaning, nowhere on planet Earth is there perfect peace. There's always this kind of violence. The, the world that will not bow down to the king, the world that will not, who's in, in, we've got the vision, he's on his throne, he's worthy. The world that will not bow down to that king will not have real peace. Let's be real practical about this. Don't we know this to be true, even as Christians? This is the world that we live in. We know this. Every time you buy something, Right? You're so excited. A house, the newest technology thing. What, you get that. And you think, oh, this is it. I finally got it. This is going to make all the difference in my life. Does it? Has it ever? Within moments. You think it's going to bring peace. It's going to satisfy me. And it doesn't. Or we have our children. Our children, they're constantly, dad, dad, I got to have this. Mom, mom, this. This will satisfy me. And in a moment of weakness, I, sure, take it. Yeah, let's get it. 
And I'm so frustrated because no later we get it home. They played with it for 10 minutes and all of a sudden it's like they've thrown it on the ground and they're stepping on it. I'm like, hey, son, what are you doing? You wanted this. Uh, It's old now. Or that new job. Finally, I've, I've, I've worked hard, I've educated, I've, I've done all this, and I've trained, and, and, and I've been working to get this job, and man, I've got it, and it's going to bring me peace, it's going to bring me satisfaction, it's going to bring me happiness, this is what I've been longing for. Those of you who have gotten that job, does it satisfy? Does it bring perfect peace? It never does. That's a curse of living in this world. That's what this horseman, that, has, that, that the, the king has, has opened the seal and this red horse has come. There is no peace. I don't want to sound like Debbie Downer. I don't mean to imply that this is a, uh, we have a mentality of defeat. But outside of Christ, if you will not bow the knee to Christ and find all your hope, joy, and satisfaction in him, it is fruitless to try to find it in anything else. He has guaranteed you may try to explore peace and joy and happiness in a relationship, in a marriage, in a job, in a possession, in riches, and so on and so forth. We all know it doesn't last. That's what he's talking about here. There is no peace. In verse 5, there's another horse. Again, these are collectively one. They're grouped together. There's overlap. A black horse. This one's carrying a a pair of scales for measuring grain. Look at verse 5. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius. And do not harm the oil and wine. What's that? He's talking about famine. Famine. And if you connect the dots, we've got conquest, war and conquest. We've got violence and no peace. One of the often consequences of that is famine. There's a picture here of a quart of wheat for a denarius or three quarts of barley, which is simply just the cheaper stuff. You're going to pay a denarius either way. You can get the good stuff, one uh, quart of wheat, or three quarts of barley. You either get the good stuff or the cheaper stuff. But you're going to pay the same amount. And why is that significant? What is a denarius? For the the soldier, a denarius was about a, a day's wage. So a quart of wheat or three quarts of barley, that was about a day's worth of food and it costs you about a day's wage? How much progress are you making there? Every day you're pretty much breaking even, and at the end of the day, you're going to go to bed, and you better get up the next day and go right back to work. Right? And as I look around the room, we have some who've been blessed with retirement, but many of us know the exhaustion of the day-in, day-out repetition. I'm trying to make ends meet. I'm trying to keep food on the table. I can't take a day off. Even when my health is failing, you know, I'd like to, I'd like to take some time off. I, I got to at least make it a half day. Because this rat race is just continually on and on and on. Why? Why are we like that rat in the cage? You just can, because the world will not bow the knee to King Jesus. And one of his expressions of judgment, he's laying out for us here. He's the one executing these things is that from 
time to time, most of humanity, this will be commonplace. Humanity will strive and strive and strive to fill up its cravings. But no matter how hard you work, at the end of the day, it's still not enough. There's, you've got enough to survive, you've got enough to get through today, but you never really satisfy enough for what you need. So you have to keep going on and on. Now, famine can be food. Famine can be spread out to be other things. But the point is, you never reach a place of utopia. You're constantly searching for more and more and more, which brings us very quickly to the pale horse. Verse 7. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. What's the picture here? The world who refuses Christ. There is no greater sin than to reject your king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, and the world that refuses Christ as king, Christ breaks the seal and sends the pale horse of death. Death comes. All that we hope for in this life, and this is what Solomon talks about in Ecclesiastes, vanity of life, vanity of life. Solomon was that one individual who lived a mountaintop. He had it all. He had the money, he had the power, he had the prestige, he had the pleasure. I won't go into details, go look at it on your own. And yet he said, none of it's satisfied. And at the end of your life, all that you've attained, it's of no value, it's of no worth. You die. And the rich man dies just like the poor man. Vanities of vanities. All of life is a vanity. Do you see here death comes? Not just physical death, spiritual death. We're alive, we're here this morning. Much of the world is but spiritually dead to the king. And the reason is Jesus has broken this fourth seal. Now let's stop and apply this very quickly. It's our king who's doing this. It's our king who is worthy to take the scroll, to break the seals, and to execute these plans and purposes of God. This is the justice of Christ, the judgment of Christ toward a world that has rebelled against him. What this means for us as these seals, judgments are being poured out upon the earth, that means that as we walk out these doors, what we see going around us is one of the greatest pulpits in the 21st century. Our king, right now, we've got the vision. He's on his throne. And down here among the seven churches, which is where we all are, we're struggling. If we can only conquer, we have these promises, but we can't conquer, so we're clinging to this king. But down here, man, life is hard. Man, there's all kinds of frustrations, fears, sufferings, temptations, afflictions, or health issues, or all these kinds of things. 
And it can feel like, tell me if I'm wrong, sometimes, listen, king, I see you up there on your throne, but it sure doesn't seem like you're winning down here. Down here, it feels like Satan's winning. It feels like sin is kicking my tail. It feels like like the world is having its way with everything that's going on. Are you even there? Do you see what's going on? Have you lost power? Have you lost control? Listen, I've asked those questions of the Lord in my own personal experience. I'm sure you have as well. And lo and behold, Revelation 6, 1 through 8 comes in. And if we will not apply it to some future time, we have no idea when it's going to be. And bring it back to what it's intended on our lives right here today. We now have a portrait of our king who, hey, children, yes, I see what's going on. Yes, you're living in a world that has rejected me. What you see going on, it's not me. I'm not passive. I'm not unresponsive. I'm not inactive. The planet is not out of control. Your king is sending all this. From national conflict to microscopic viruses. Your king is bringing this to bear on this world. Because this world will not bow the knee to me. And this is our our first cycle. If they won't repent, by the time we get to our seventh, there is no hope. There will be that final judgment. Christ is sending this. Everything that we see going on in our lives are Christ's tools Now, he uses them differently in the life of a Christian than he does in the life of an unbeliever. For you and I, count it all joy when you face trials and temptations of various kinds, right? That's not what he intends for the unbeliever. Why in the world would we consider these things that Christ is bringing to bear for joy? Because he's using them for our sanctification. We see that everywhere in the New Testament. Everywhere. Go read the story of Job. Was it Satan who who, who killed his family? Was it Satan who brought who made him? No. It was God who allowed Satan to do it. And God said, here, I've got you on a leash. You get this much and no more. And Job himself, as he's asking questions, God, who, who are you? Where are you? By the end of Job, after God has revealed himself to it, how does Job reply? Forgive me for even asking. I didn't see things the way you see things. I didn't connect those dots to see God, what I thought, let's use uh, um, uh, the words from the, what, what you meant for evil, God meant for good in Joseph's life. God, forgive me. I didn't see and understand. You're on your throne. And you're bringing this to bear. Do we have a category in our minds as we're looking unto Jesus? Oh, he's beautiful in majesty, in holiness, in righteousness, in love, in mercy, in grace. But do we have a category in our minds that he is also just and judge and right now? He is executing judgments on a world that will not bend the knee to him. In Lamentations, Jeremiah asks this question about the suffering that the people of God were going through, is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? Listen, 
our king sends out good things upon the just and the unjust. We call that common grace. But at times, he also executes hard things, bad things, and they come to every person on planet Earth because this planet will not bend the knee to him. It will one day. But right now, he's worthy. And therefore, we live in a place that has rejected him, and he executes these things. His purposes in our lives, sanctification. And the, and the life of the unbeliever is judgment. But there's mingled in it, there's time to repent. We live in a day today. we credit Satan with so many things. Satan did this to me. Satan did that to me. On the authority of Revelation chapter 6, never, ever say that again. Satan is not sovereign. He's, not, he's a tool of our king. This is a wonderful thing. Over the past 2,000 years, our king is on his throne. And he has been pouring out judgment and justice. But he means it as a means of grace. There is opportunity to repent. There is opportunity to return to your king. And if you've not done that, beloved, it's fruitless to try to find satisfaction, hope, joy in anything other than him. Today, turn to him. He's pouring out these things because he is all in all. He is everything. Yet we continue to try to find it in other things. What are you looking to to try to find your, is it a job, family, marriage, finances, if it's not Christ, repent. Turn to him. Now, we'll have to pick up here. I'm kind of ending at a sloppy point, and for that, I apologize. We're kind of in a middle section. Christ is all. Do you know that? Do you feel that here? Bow your head here in the quiet of the room. Use this time just to... Maybe the Spirit of God has exposed something in your life that needs to be dealt with, some place where you've turned to something other than Christ. Repent of that thing. Pray for grace to find in Christ everything you're looking for. And if you're here and you're an unbeliever, you've never once done so, I used to be there too. You're not alone. Did you know today can be the day of salvation? If you will repent of your sins, Put your hope in Jesus Christ. I pray you'll do that.